Hi, everybody. Welcome to PR Masters, a podcast series sponsored by the Stevens Group and Compro. I'm Art Stevens, your host. In this podcast series, we honor legends in the world of public relations, individuals who have made an indelible mark on the role and progress that public relations has made in the world. And today's guest is no exception. He is Stuart Hall, and Stuart is CEO and managing partner of Public Policy Holding Company, better known as PPHC, which he co-founded in 2014, and along with Crossroads Strategies, which is original company. Stuart began his career as the legislative director to Senator Richard Shelby, a Republican from Alabama, from 1992 to 1996. And during this time, Stewart acquired a substantial background in defense policy and appropriations and financial services and Senate procedure. And in 1999, he co-founded Federalist Group, LLC, as his first private sector venture. Under his guidance as CEO, Federalist Group was ultimately acquired by Ogilvy Public Relations, a WPP company, and in 2005, proceeded to double in size during the four years after the transaction under his continued leadership. In 2010, Stewart co-founded CRS, and in 2014, CRS was merged to form PPHC. God, you've been busy during those years, Stewart. And PPHC is the first full-service organization dedicated to synthesizing all disciplines of the public policy economy in a multi-brand, horizontally integrated company. And as managing partner of PPHC, Stewart has overseen an organization that has achieved a 30% plus compound annual growth rate each year through merger, acquisition, and organic growth, and has now grown to over 200 employees nationwide. Stewart is a graduate of the University of Alabama and earned an MA and PhD in government from the University of Virginia. It's my pleasure to welcome today's PR master, Stuart Hall. Stuart, thank you so much for joining us, and how are you today? I'm great, Art, and I, I appreciate the opportunity, and uh, always glad to talk to talk to you. And uh, just uh, you know, however you want to proceed, just fire away, and uh, we'll chat. So we'll definitely chat, Stuart. You've got you. Know, we got a lot of questions for you, and because you have a most interesting company and one that's really a product of the times we live in, without question. So, Stuart, why don't you tell our audience initially about how your agency got started and why it's different from other agencies? You obviously have been involved in, as I just described in your bio, working with a number of different agencies and mergers and acquisitions, but obviously something came to your mind which led you to where you are today with PPHC. Why don't you describe that for us? I I think, Art, you know, it's interesting that all of our companies, and as you said this in your intro, uh, you know, we concentrate on really what we call the public policy economy. And, uh, you know, we are an agency in that, you know, we provide a suite of business services to corporations, nonprofits, trade associations, uh, all of which are centered around managing political risk and opportunity. Uh, in other words, interface with government, with regulators, with policymakers, uh, both, again, uh, in managing, you know, what could be everything from regulatory risk to possible economic opportunity. 
you know, where we got this idea from and started it from was, as you mentioned, we sold our original, what was really a, a direct advocacy registered federal lobbying firm, traditional lobbying firm to WPP, to the Ogilvy uh, PR brand back in 2005. And uh, when we sold that firm, um, there was a frenzy kind of uh, in the marketplace where a number of PR holding companies were purchasing uh, lobbying properties, especially in Washington, D.C. I think the, uh, the the interesting thing about that experience was is that, you know, what we discovered is despite the fact that those companies uh, as well run and as profitable as they were, were buying things in our space, just from a size and a scale standpoint, you know, we were, I would say, I wouldn't call us non-conforming assets, but we were certainly not at the kind of core you know, a mission of an Omnicom or a WPP or an Interpublic, which was basically, you know, advertising holding companies. And so, you know, as a result, you know, we were we were somewhat off in the distance, I think, both financially and, and in terms of strategic, you know, fit from where the core of those companies were. But what I did learn, you know, coming out of that experience with some of my other partners was, you know, really how you could run a holding company and, and use that model that they had uh, in order to, you know, create some scale efficiencies, conflict management, brand integrity that went with that, all of those things. And, uh, you know, during that five-year period or four-and-a-half-year period, I learned a tremendous amount by being, you know, within the kind of WPP infrastructure. But coming out of that, you know, we were coming out in 2010, really kind of barely emerging from the Great Recession, and what had really happened was, is, you know, in our business, which, again, was direct advocacy, again, lobbying, registered, disclosed lobbying, what had happened was a couple of things. The first was that our clients were actually spending more than they ever had to manage the space because they think, you know, digital disruption of political conversation, geographic dispersion of, of issue management, et cetera, had created a set of circumstances where direct contact with policymakers was no longer enough to simply get a political actor or regulator uh, to move. You really needed media management, earned media, paid media, data, uh, constituency mobilization or slash grassroots. All of those tools were coming to the fore. So while, again, direct advocacy lobbying was still an incredibly lucrative, you know, $3.5 billion a year industry uh, at the federal level alone, uh, what, you know, I was finding was that our clients were spending more and more money to manage the space uh, than ever before, and then realized that it was really a growing portion of, you know, their outside services spend, no less than legal accounting or anything else that companies were consuming to be successful and, again, managing risk and opportunity. So, in uh, looking at it from that perspective, and then, you know, coming out of the recession and seeing how the kind of financial service access had really flipped where, you know, New York was now coming to Washington more than Washington was going to New York, which was a huge change. And, you know, the past Dodd-Frank, uh, you know, in terms of financial regulations, Obamacare, uh, the passage of that, which really, you know, uh, intervened, uh, put the government into 15 percent of the economy. Uh, that it had not really been in before in terms of health insurance. And then, you know, looking at subsequent events, just like the response to COVID, there's just been a trend that government is getting bigger and bigger. And that's not just the United States. That's across the entire Western developed world. And it's getting bigger. It's spending more money. But it's also, again, putting its finger in, in greater greater 
parts of, of what used to be considered uh, untouchable parts of the economy that were kind of left to the whims of the marketplace. Uh, as a result, again, our clients have greater challenges. They're harder to manage than ever before. So that's where the idea for PPHC came from, which was we could build an agency along a holding company model line and that though we could actually start and concentrate in a place that we as you know political policy practitioners really understood, which was, again, you know, government advocacy and the tools that went into it to have successful outcomes for clients. So that is, that's where we began, and that was where the idea was conceived of. And I think, you know, to the you know, fact that now we're now a little up, we started in 2014, started planning in 2012, but, you know, 10 years into this, this project, I think uh, we're no less convinced today than we were when we started that we're, we're on the right track. So, Stuart, yes, you started. You merged CRS into PPHC in 2014, or actually it was merged to form PPHC. And then you obviously, at that point when you formed PPHC, you had a, you, you know, you had a vision as to what you wanted to do with PPHC. How tough a sell was it when you actually approached, let's say, the first one or two firms that you wanted to acquire? Was it tougher to sell it to them, let's say, than it may be to firms today? Well, one of the things, yeah, our, it was a tough sell. You're right. We started it as a partnership roll-up in effect. And so, you know, there was no there was no immediate capital reward, you know, or transactional price paid for anyone joining our group. The irony is, is our CFO, uh, Bill Chess, who you know, um, yeah. Bill and I have uh, back again around you know around that time we started it in 2014 and um, with our founding you know, firm along with CRS which was Forbes Tate Partners and uh, we met with Dan and Jeff and uh, the meeting ended Dan and Jeff stood up on the table and they said man we really like this idea we think we might want to do it and uh, Bill and I looked at each other after they left and said man this is going to be really easy and uh, <laughs> in fact it wasn't, it wasn't at all because you know it takes a lot of trust for someone to really, you know, kind of deed over their business to a larger partnership, even if they're still co-owners of the larger enterprise, you know, to buy into an idea that we could create higher value, uh, you know, by combining ourselves and without an immediate, you know, short-term reward for that combination. So it really was a long, long stretch. And, uh, you know, the, the, you know, ultimately we managed to put eight companies into five different operating verticals before we actually went public last December, and we did all of that with no cash. You know, it was done again on trust. So, but I think the good part of that was our core group really, really is a very cohesive group. You know, the ones that founded this and then the ones that came subsequent to that pre-IPO, because again, there was an awful lot of trust and shared vision that resulted from those combinations. So it's all under the banner of, I guess, what you call public policy, which includes lobbying, public affairs. Are there any other, first of all, those niches, I presume, work together hand in hand, public affairs and lobbying. Is that the case? I mean, more and more? They especially do today, Art, because, again, you know, years ago, when you go back to the, the mid-90s, when, when I started in the registered lobbying space, uh, a good lobbyist really could in and of themselves, if they had the right set of relationships or a lobbying group, could really move very, very significant issues yeah. for clients without a lot of outside, how should we say, 
message shaping, ambiance, et cetera. Um, then again is again the kind of the digitalization of our conversation uh, and our political information flow changed. That all that led to I think a reticence of policymakers at many levels to really act on the power of a good relationship alone. Uh, and I think they needed to be convinced that, you know, their their constituency was with them. Hence, you know, the need to shape, you know, the overall media message, to shape public opinion, uh, to make sure that people back home, you know, were clearly comfortable with whatever you were asking somebody to do, pro or con. So as a result, again, you know, it, it took on a greater complexity. So the, the first was the PA and the earned media element became very important. Then the paid media element followed from that. Then, of course, the digitalization of the paid media, which is, you know, where we are today, I think, in terms of deploying so many of, of our tools on the PA front to support, again, what we used to call retail lobbying. And, of course, obviously, those tools are, you know, mysterious to some people, not so much to us, but they uh, they certainly, you know, involve a very, very complex modeling and data requirements that, you know, all go hand in glove into being able to shape shape policy outcomes. Uh, I think, you know, one of the things, though, that's lost on, on a lot of people is there's so much more in this policy economy that I speak of that goes on, which is there's a tremendous amount of research that's produced. And I mean, just sometimes it's just basic policy research. There's a tremendous amount of stuff that is consumed by companies dealing with, uh, you know, any number of, of other facets. You know, sometimes everything, grant writing, outcomes. You know, when government spends a lot of money, you know, a lot of this stuff just goes through competitive bidding processes. There's no lobbying or influencing in it. It's really being able to write an effective grant proposal. So, you know, contract management. There's so much that goes on on both ends, the input and the output side of government now, again, at all levels. And again, I think another thing people have missed is how much stuff is dispersed out in the states and even now internationally in terms of international agreements. We just recently, you know, enacted the U.S. portion of a commitment to a global minimum tax, corporate minimum tax. That was done without treaty. Um, but it was done via agreement, you know, with, with our partners in, in other parts of the, of the G20 environment. And uh, that, you know, again, kind of shows you, again, where the world is headed, you know, again, in terms of, of policy outcomes and uh, the fact that things that can start, you know, at um, uh, economic conferences can become public law, uh, you know, regardless of what someone, you know, sovereign home nation may believe about it. So, Again, this landscape that we're operating in is expanding dramatically down from the original kind of PA element that went with it. Yeah. Well, do you foresee the possibility of, of making acquisitions overseas? Um, we're actively looking at it. Uh, I think, again, there are certain, you know, more developed, how should I say, public policy markets that are better for us. Obviously, you know, Europe, the U.K., et cetera, you know, those are the places, you know, we would naturally look. I think one of the, the things that, that we we found, and uh, it wasn't something we didn't know, but, you know, when you see it up close is if you look in the context of, for example, Brussels, they have a much, you know, governments aren't always the same. The EU government is, is very much driven not by the people that make up the EU parliament, but by the people who actually make up the actual uh, you know, governmental entities, you know, the, the careerists and the professionals in Brussels uh, who work inside of the EU apparatus. 
that's where the most of the policy outcomes come from. So it's a very different environment, again, in terms of how you would perform advocacy. There's a lot of importance in influencing, you know, the, the home countries too as well and member states of the EU. But also they have their own you know, disclosure regime uh, that people have to comply with. It's very advanced, uh, again, compared to some, some other jurisdictions in the world. But again, you know, these are places where we think the rules are very clear and the opportunities are clear and, and, and we want to be there uh, because, again, there are outcomes and there's a lot of money being spent there, again, by our existing clients, um, you know, who, again, are looking for global solutions. Uh, the UK is another market that, I, again, I think is very similar. It's advanced in a way that, that you know, certainly while they don't, they define, quote, what we would call lobbying, everything falls under the public affairs rubric over there as they use the term. Uh, but again, another kind of advanced country that uh, certainly is, uh, you know, has a very sophisticated political system that interacts with both media and policymakers. Heading back to the U.S. for a moment, uh, are there any complementary niches in, in addition to, let's say, public affairs, lobbying, you know, PR, or in media, and I guess you're into digital as well, but are there any other niches that you would uh, consider that would complement what you presently do? Well, again, I think one of the things I just mentioned is that we're really interested, you know, in some ways, all the things that you mentioned are to really what we would call kind of the front end of the pipe, right? that you're trying to influence policy, you know, outcomes or, or certain types of, of decisions that, again, can either mitigate risk or, again, create opportunity. But when you get to the, the backside of the process, you know, what, what, what comes out of the government once not just a regulation or a policy is made, but, you know, how is it implemented, uh, you know, when you spend, you know, trillions of dollars a year, how is that money spent? There's a whole lot of outcomes that people don't really view. Again, you know, how would your client access that grant money, for example? You know, um, we recently passed the CHIPS Act here in D.C., which was designed to help, you know, re-onshore, uh, uh, you know, U.S. semiconductor manufacturing. Uh, and there's a tremendous amount of opportunity there for chip manufacturers, obviously, to take advantage of the money that was in the bill to, uh, you know, reshore their their operations here. So, you know, people are looking, you know, numerous companies in that space are now looking to, uh, you know, how do I access the backside, you know, where the decisions are going to be made, you know, by, again, mostly professionals in the United States government and careerists, you know, how do I access those grants, obviously, you know, so that I can build the new facility in X state or what have you. So, you know, oftentimes people overlook that. If you look at the uh, the, the um, Inflation Reduction Act had, you know, uh, over $300 billion worth of varying forms of energy transition grants, everything from obviously solar to wind, et cetera. Uh, where are those going to be implemented? Well, you know, there's there's that flows down to states, localities, you know, people that operate at a different level of government. People would be shocked, and maybe, you know, you being from California, you might understand it a little better, but, um, you know, people would be – are often shocked when they realize how much difficulty it is to site a solar, you know, a solar plant on private land in, you know, a county in any given place in the United States, lots of local opposition often. So, you know, you have a whole other level of engagement that comes, again, on that backside of that funnel flow. Uh, where you have to even start managing, you know, again, local government and local opinion in terms of the ability to cite these things. 
So again, we're really interested in that part too. Um, you know, we know we have a good plan and we've executed well on it. And we're going to continue to for the, again, I said the input side, but we view a great amount of opportunity on the output side too. Well, Stuart, what's it like being a public company? Obviously, you got PPHC off the ground by igniting the interest on the part of those who joined in terms of you know what the future could look like, what PPHC could do for all parties. Now that you're a public company, how is it different for you in terms of running the company, and what benefits do you see from having done it? Well, first, just at a personal level first, I'm still a registered lobbyist. I still do work for CRS clients, many of which have been with me and some of my founding partners for a long time. And, and there's a, a serious, uh, you know, entrusting relationship there. And, uh, you know, I still do that. It helps me keep my toe in the water. But as part of my day job, it's become less and less, uh, simply because, uh, obviously, you know, PPHC is uh, – you know, headed north of $100 million, if you look at, you know, publicly disclosed analyst reports. Uh, actually, after the California transaction we just had uh, in Sacramento, we're now over 300 employees. So, you know, the scope and scale of that, plus the obligations, you know, to, to run a public company in, in terms of compliance and disclosure and uh, following, you know, the correct procedures and doing things right, uh, that all of those things take a lot more time. So, you know, my, my, more of my time is being set, spent using the PPHC email than the CRS one. Um, but I would say, you know, from a company standpoint, you know, we've seen the benefits already not even a year in. I think, one, obviously, access to capital to help accelerate M&A, you know, whether that be, you know, the use of our shares, you know, either either for, again, to raise cash or to use, you know, as, as uh, you know, an acquisition instrument. But also, I think, you know, the ability to attract talent, you know, the equity instrument is, I think, at least in Washington, D.C. parlance especially, is, is very different. You know, very few companies have ever had the opportunity in our space to provide what I would call, you know, kind of meaningful long-term growth equity uh, to, to their key employees. And, you know, we think going in, we thought this was going to be a big differentiator. Uh, we've certainly seen it have an effect in terms of our ability to recruit key talent within our operating companies at the whole co-level. And, uh, frankly, you know, uh, we think the decision, even though it was early stage uh, public offering, you know, you know, we're feeling very, very validated about that decision. Uh, and, and we think it'll continue to pay fruit um, as we go forward because, you know, we are an agency, as you said, and, and you know, agencies live off of talent. And, you know, we think that instrument is the key for long-term success to, to keep our, our top people around for a long time and to recruit new ones, you know, for the ability to plan for succession and, and the passage of time. Well, as you indicated, you're north of $100 million right now, which uh... – in, in all of the rankings of call it public relations firms, put you really among uh, certainly among the top ten, you know, in the country, uh, which is quite an achievement in the amount of time since you started. What's your game plan, though, Stuart? How big do you want to get? Do you have a number in mind? Do you have like uh, certain areas of the country <laughs> that you want to do acquisitions in? What's your game plan? What's your vision? I think I think we've been I think we've been pretty transparent publicly about you know our intents, which are a there are certain key state capitals where there is just a tremendous amount of activity. Sacramento being one, uh, which obviously we've got a flag in. We have a firm in Boston, uh, and 
now, which again, you know, isn't just Massachusetts, has a footprint throughout the New England states. But there are obviously other large state capitals where, again, there's a lot of activity where we can support and they can support us in terms of a, uh, and our clients would like for us to have, uh, you know, both lobbying and public affairs assets in those places. So we're looking to the states, as we discussed a little earlier, we're looking internationally. Again, looking at, at new capabilities, again, to add both here in D.C. and in other geographies. As far as revenue goes, uh, you know, I, I don't know, Art. I, I think that, you know, our marketplace itself is well into the billions, both theoretically and, and actual market as well. So, you know, we believe there's a lot of headroom for us to continue to grow, really, again, in the public policy management space. So, you know, again, by adding those services and by geographic dispersion, and, you know, you know, our intention is to do it, do it smartly. You know, you can grow too fast sometimes and you have to be careful. You know, we're trying to be methodical and, and smart about what we do, you know, make sure that the things that we bring in are complimentary and, and obviously accretive to shareholder value. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we're going to we're going to do this for a while. I think, you know, there's, again, good buy in. There's good glue with the again, the equity instrument from both the old owners and new people that have come in. And uh, we, we feel like we've got a lot of headroom to go. And, um, you know, we're going to we're going to see where it takes. How's that for a roundabout? <laughs> no, you, you nailed it. Just as a follow up to that, you know, the country is going through some. Tough times, obviously. You know, uh, government is being questioned by many people, many groups. Uh, there's divisiveness. You know, there's uh, there's uh, violence. You know, there's uh, right and left hate each other. Uh, what effect does this have on your business? And what are your thoughts about that? Well, I mean, I think in general, take out the kind of acrimony that our politics seems to have these days. And there are smart people that can debate whether it's any worse now than it was you know, times in the 1800s, early 1900s. But that being said, certainly more amplified, you know, in the digital instant world we live in. But you, you take that out for a second. I think, you know, the one consistent thing is is that government doesn't go away. And I think what we've learned, again, through some economic upheavals, you know, really even starting with the uh, accounting uh, issues that, that popped up in the early 2000s, you know, all the way to present day and, again, the COVID response is government doesn't lay back anymore when, you know, there are challenges, economic or otherwise. And, again, ideologically, people can debate whether that's a good thing or not. But the fact is, is that governments are just interventionists. They are not going to sit back and, and allow financial crises, for example, or economic ones to metastasize and, and run their course, you know, in a laissez-faire fashion. As a result, again, uh, you know, for better or for worse, our, our business is remarkably stable uh, from that standpoint in terms of being affected by economic downturns. I think when you talk about our politics in general, and of course, obviously, we are an all-U.S. company right now, but I think that, you know, yeah, there's acrimony, but I think we have a remarkably resilient system in this country. You know, I uh, it was not an accident that, that uh, we called our first firm the Federalist Group and, you know, based off that, the Federalist Papers. And, you know, our system, because it disperses power across both states, localities, through the federal government, through multiple institutions within every one of those areas, because of that 
both dispersion of power and, and the ability for so many checks, not just what we're taught in civics class about, you know, federal checks and balances. They exist at multiple levels. Uh, I, I think we have a remarkably open and resilient society. And, and I think, you know, you know, I've been asked, and I, I try not to proffer many opinions about politics anymore, but, uh, you know, someone asked me, you know, recently what did the um, – well, this was product of a conversation with a friend of mine who uh, is from the other side of the aisle, and we were talking, and, you know, I'd had this thought, in, you know, about the results in the most recent midterms, and he crystallized it very well when he said, you know, the message was just knock it off. And I think the American people were just like, we want to get back to normal. We've been living under COVID restrictions. We've had, you know, people throwing food at each other for six years, and, and, and we're just tired of it. And I think that went for both parties. And so I think, again, there's, that's, again, the system kind of acting in its own self-correcting fashion. So, you know, I, I feel good about America's prospects and, and, and our political discourse. Again, it can be acrimonious, and, and, you know, there's, you know, we have a large country with, and it only takes one nut, you know, to, to you know, get a lot of attention for themselves and do bad things. But at the end of the day, I think the American people and the body politic is pretty healthy. Good to hear. Good to hear. What about the future of professionals in the world of uh, public policy, uh, public affairs, lobbying, and so on? Is there enough of a pool out there? Uh, is there a talent pool that uh, continues to grow itself? Uh, or are you concerned I, that there may be a lack of talent? Well, what I can tell you, Art, is there's an awful lot of young college people that will come through my office and others these days, and they will – come in and they would say, gee, I'd like to, you know, be a lobbyist one day, or I would like to go work in a, in a PR shop, you know, supporting public affairs. You didn't see this when I was young. You know, this was not, you know, politics as a vocation to, to crib a line from Box Faber. But, um, you know, you see a lot of it now. And I think, you know, that there are a lot of young people who are actively, you know, attuning their mind at a very young age to come work in the professional side. Not in the actual, you know, I want to go be a Hill staffer and then retire after 30 years or whatever, serve the public, which is laudable and admirable. But a lot of people are thinking, you know, as quickly as they can out of college now, actually working in this industry, which, again, probably shows that it's it's developing as a really mature industry. Uh, so uh, we have we've got a fellowship program here at PPHC that we run every summer now. And uh, last year was the first year we kicked it off. Uh, we're taking applicants for next year now, and it, it was just an absolute home run. Uh, th these young people were, were were just absolutely tremendous. Again, you talked about what we were just talking about before about you know are you negative or positive about what's going on with American politics? And you see these young people. Yet you don't you don't have any worry about the future. And uh, again, uh, so I think I think there's a there's a generation of talent coming up. You know, I think when you look at you know the more mature operators in this business, certainly where you're going to draw your people from in the lobbying world, where are they going to come from, and even in the comms world to some extent in this space, they're going to come from Capitol Hill. They're going to come out of administrations, executive branches, governors' offices. Etc. Um, you know, legislatures. Um, you know, this is where your talent is going to always be drawn from. But I think there's a lot more people looking to be in our quote business space now as professionals than there certainly was 20, 25 years ago.
Well, speaking of that, Stuart, how did you get into public policy yourself? Did you know that it was an area you wanted to get into uh, upon getting your degrees from college? No, it wasn't. Just like most people, I ended up here by accident of campaign work. <laughs> My, uh, I worked in Richards. I was in the, I was at the University of Alabama as an undergraduate in 1986, and I worked in Richard Shelby's first Senate campaign, which has been an interesting 36 years. He's actually hanging up here in January, but uh, I worked in Senator Shelby's first Senate campaign. Uh, he only won by 7,000 votes. Uh, back then, you had to, if you wanted to be competitive, you spent all your money on broadcast television. Uh, so there wasn't a whole lot of money spent on the ground game. So it was myself and about four or five others stuffing envelopes and nailing up yard signs all over the state. And um, I got to uh, come up the following summer after he won and spent all summer here interning for him. And uh, then I went to grad school and uh, asked him for a job after I got done. I thought I was going to be a college professor, honestly, and then I just kind of <laughs> changed direction yeah. at yeah. the end. So it was, it was kind of a happy accident. And then, uh, you know, I got started with him, and the rest kind of took its course. But uh, it certainly wasn't, you know, again, with any, any real intent. I uh, didn't think that was going to happen. So, again, you know, like many things in life, circumstances bring us to a place, uh, a happy place many times, but not always how we, 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 we mapped it out. That's true of most of us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Stuart, that's what you I never tell my children. <laughs> <laughs> like Desi said, you got a lot of explaining to do, right? <laughs> but what do you consider you run a company that is north of 100 million in revenue, you got over 300 employees. What do you consider your style of management to be? What have you learned from your early days of managing, you know, smaller companies actually to where where you are today? How do you do it and what is your style? You know, I think it goes back to even when I was on Capitol Hill and I was I was promoted to being a legislative director and was given responsibility for staff. And I, I think I learned, you know, some valuable lessons even then before we built our first lobbying firm. And and I think one of the, the key takeaways from that was is that you can have all the structure you want for people, but if you don't have good people, you're not going to, you know, succeed. And, you know, so I think there's any kind of, you know, thing that I always stick to is is that, look, find the absolute best people you can. Don't be arrogant and think there's nothing you can be taught. There's always someone who knows more about something than you do and can bring skill sets to the table. And then let, them, let these people work, you know, and I think that's the thing. Let good people do what they need to do. And don't micromanage them to the extent that you choke their ability to do what they're good at off. And so, you know, if there's anything, again, I believe in, it's having the very, very best people that I can have around me because you can't, and I mean, it is not a cliche, you cannot do good without good people. And so, you know, we, uh, we, we pride ourselves on that here. And, uh, you know, as long as I'm here, that will be the mantra. Well, Stuart, that's a good note to end our discussion on. You have been illuminating, you've been informative, and you have really given us a great sense of what public policy is, how it should be carried out, and uh, your role in it. And I congratulate you on developing and being CEO of uh, PPHC, and I wish you much success ahead, and I thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks, Art, and look forward to hopefully talking again uh, after we've uh, gotten a little further down the road in our journey. So I appreciate you, you having betcha. me. You betcha. You betcha. And I'd like to thank all of you for joining us today. 
Stuart Hall is truly a PR master, and he is a, a legend in the industry, and just watch PPH go. I'm Arch Stevens, your host, and I'm managing partner of the Stevens Group, and I'm signing off right now. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again next time. Take care, everybody.